Hello, and welcome back to the Manufacturing Culture Podcast, where we explore the exciting and innovative world of manufacturing. Buckle up, listeners, because today's episode will be thrilling, and I can't wait to share it with you. Our next guest is a powerhouse of entrepreneurial spirit, an innovator, a hockey player, and a man who's lived everywhere from Austin to Saskatchewan. Meet Joey Hovsepian. He's played hockey with future NHL stars, coordinated fancy wine dinners with media giants like the LA Times, and blazed a trail through the manufacturing industry like a comet in the night sky. Joey's career is a tale of constant evolution, from his humble beginnings selling golf balls to leading technology programs and large manufacturing companies. Now, he's building Emmett, set to reshape the future of distribution. Folks, Joey's story is one of inspiration, innovation, and transformation. And I promise you, you don't want to miss this. So grab your headphones, settle in, and dive into a conversation that will inspire, excite, and leave you with plenty to think about. Here's Joey Hosepian, who's as comfortable on the ice as he is revolutionizing an industry. Joey, welcome to the Manufacturing Culture Podcast. Jim, thanks for having me. Um, I've been looking forward to this intro all week. Um, I think you need to put your name in the hat when Bruce Buffer retires so you can do the intros for UFC and boxing because it is like highlight of the week, man. So I thank you very much. I, I, I just I had to pause a beat because the one of the, the previous guests uh mentioned Bruce Buffer as well. And th- so to have two people mention Bruce Buffer and, and my name in conjunction with that is absolutely wild. And I appreciate the compliment. I, I love what I do and I love writing these, these intros. So thank you very much. Uh, so Joey, uh, our typical episode is talking with somebody, uh, a leader in this space, uh, who's led a company through cultural transformations, uh, through years, sometimes decades, right? Um, and your story is a little bit different. Uh, you, you're about to launch, uh, Emmett as a, a platform. Uh, I think you have a couple of employees, but I really want you to start off by giving us kind of an overview of Emmett. How many employees do you have now? And what does Emmett do? Definitely. So um, I'll actually take us a, a step even farther back. Um, I think in calling on manufacturers the last eight years of my life, working at a couple of the largest metals distributors in the country, EMJ and then Marmon Keystone, um, one of the common things that came up is like the buyers are getting younger, manufacturers are looking to get more lean and more efficient. And so like one of those elements is perfect. How do we create a product or a service or whatever it may be that provides efficiencies and adds value to uh, to manufacturers? I mean, I've visited dozens, if not hundreds of manufacturers every 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 month, and some of them have no issue finding people and other ones have uh, have had a perpetual we're hiring sign out side on the front door. And right. and so when I take a step back and I go, perfect, how do I provide value to these guys? These are all great human beings. I'm like, I love the industry. How do we how do we create something that's going to make their lives a lot easier? And and so Emmett, 
um, came to mind where we're looking to basically reinvent how metals are distributed. Um, tra traditionally, when a manufacturer needs metal, they're going to call up or email their inside rep. There's probably four or five different vendors they're looking to call. Um, it's a process. Very rarely do you get a price on material uh, on the spot, yet alone within the couple hours. Um, and, and so we're looking to build out a platform where manufacturers can come to Emmet and buy their metals from us. Um, we're, we're looking to basically streamline the, the process where, hey, you don't need to call five distributors. You can just hop on, search for what you're looking for. We have it in stock. We're going to be able to give you a price right away. We're handling end-to-end -end distribution of material. We have cloud warehouses set up around the country. Um, and, and so we, we think it's a cool product. And we've been starting to talk, call on manufacturers. And uh, there's been a really, really strong response. Um, in terms of the company itself, so we, I, I left my previous role at Marmon in March and kind of spent a couple of weeks just figuring out what I wanted to do next. Um, sure. it, it was time to move on. I felt like it was time to do something on my own, but I hadn't really nailed down what that was yet. Um, and this idea just, it was something I kept circling back to. And I said, you know what, let's do it. Um, it's a perfect time to start a company. Nobody can go and raise money. VC has been absolutely dry the last six months. And I said, perfect. Sounds like a fun challenge to go out <laughs> and, and try and raise money for this thing. Um, and surprisingly, what I found out is like B2B industrials, A, can generate a lot of money. VCs didn't really pay attention um, to, to people in manufacturing spaces and people in industrials. They were so gung-ho on investing in SaaS products, which, yeah, they they will have... 65 to 80% margins, mm -hmm. but it also takes five, six years to get to profitability. Whereas like the Metal Center News does a top 50 steel distributors in the country every year. And number 50 is doing $130 million a year, right? Wow. So there's like massive amounts of revenue and value being provided in manufacture to manufacturers through metals and other B2B services. There's a really cool company out in Chicago called Factory Fix that provides um, HR services to manufacturers who are having a hard time finding employees like phenomenal company I'm, I'm not familiar with them but it's just one that i saw online and i'm really intrigued by them like super cool company they have had um, they've gone and raised money and they have a really cool product out and i would be shocked if they're not profitable right now um so anyway so i went out raised money relatively quickly i, I learned that vcs like industrials and an opportunity and we appealed to a lot of them um so we raised money pretty quickly and we've started developing our platform um, the the NTN distribution. Uh, we have what three employees now. I'm actually hiring another account manager right now, and I'll probably look to get a fourth one up and running probably around the middle of October to November, depending on how the uh, the hiring process goes. So fun times ahead. Wow, that's awesome. That's uh, a fun journey uh, that you've embarked on, uh, entrepreneur to entrepreneur. It's simultaneously the most fun and scariest experience uh i've ever had uh, how's it how's it feel for you it's been a lot of fun um i think a lot of the roadblocks i've encountered are not ones i thought i was going to encounter like little funny things like at one point i had an employee being uh, onboard my first employee and I was like, oh, how hard could it be? And then I realized like 10 years of making fun of the folks who work in HR, it's not easy to onboard an employee. There's so <laughs> many things you have to do from just setting up their onboarding documentation to getting them health insurance, to allocating them some of the shares that they're, they're getting under their comp plan. So like all these little things that I thought were just like, oh, you check off a couple boxes. 
took a lot more time. You have to talk to the health insurance broker and you have to talk to this guy and that guy. And it was like, oh my God. Um, but past that, it has been so much fun. Um, I, I mean, we, we work in a really cool industry, right? So yeah. I, I get to supply metal to people who are building things that go up into space, who are building things that help put food on people's tables. Like how much more fulfilling can work get than that? So to me, when I get to work every morning, it's like, awesome. Let me flip up the laptop, talk to some cool customers. Um, I think onboarding a couple employees, like there, there was some, there was some tough elements that were I had to learn how to reallocate my time. So I started waking up three hours earlier because I knew <laughs> I was going to lose three hours of my day onboarding an employee. Um, but I need to grow this business. So I need to put the work in. So how do I do that? Well, I need to, I need to put more hours into my workday. Perfect. Let me go do that. So it, it's just been a constant evolution, a constant, a constant pivot point, um, zigging when I need to zig and zagging when I need to zag and just, uh, trying my best to make the right decision and to make sure decisions of today don't shackle me tomorrow. Yeah. Awesome. So, uh, Joey, what, what has been your cultural journey in the industry as a whole? Um, you know, where, where do you feel the culture was when you started? Where do you think it is now? And then really more importantly, uh, as you scale and build Emmett, uh, where do you see the, the culture getting to? Yep. So I started my my career in the metals industry at EMJ it's about eight years ago um, and phenomenal company. I mean, we talk about like what I'm trying to be is like the EMJ of the future. Um, great, great company. Love them. Um, I started there with a cohort of probably what, eight inside sales reps, all of us young. And I mean, typically the metals industry is not a, it's not the youngest of industries. So we started, <laughs> there's probably about eight of us. I don't think more than two of us are still in the industry. Just people work in the industry and realize like, hey, I want to go work in tech or just very interesting dynamic. Um, Whereas I like, I just loved it. Um, But within EMJ, it's like I started in LA, really fun atmosphere. That was the corporate office. Um, It was a great facility. They had the long product on one side and they had a plate facility with lasers and water jets. And it was like, I was like a kid in the candy shop and it, it was great. Um, I started out on the inside desk, just taking phone calls, cold calling manufacturers, uh, just trying to get like a book of business going. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it was great. But I quickly identified that I wanted to move into outside sales as much as possible. Talking to people on the phone, it's great. But like you walk a floor and it's way cooler. Talk about being a kid in the candy shop, one out eight, eight hours a day in different facilities. So I knew I quickly wanted to move outside. Um Culturally, though, it's very fascinating going from one office to another. It's, I, I, I would switch offices to the Northern California office and totally different dynamics. And it, it was funny. The uh, I, I missed the culture of being in the LA office. The LA office was like everyone's grabbing beers after work and a lot more camaraderie, whereas the, the Northern California office was more of a satellite office. Um, great people who work there, but like vastly different age groups on the account managers, the inside reps. And it just kind of created an environment where there wasn't nearly as much camaraderie. Um, and I absolutely missed it. Um, but it was great. I learned a lot. There was tons of phenomenal experience to lean on. And uh, basically, like I, I became a SpongeBob man. I was taking in. I was a sponge taking in as much information as I can in the short term. Because at the end of the day, like whether the culture is good or bad, if you're trying to grow, you need to make sacrifices. And unfortunately, the uh, the cultural element kind of became a little bit of the uh, the sacrifice being made at that point in time, mm-hmm. um, which is cool. It was great, great experience, and and it helped me understand like what's great culture, what's culture that I don't really that doesn't really resonate with me. Um, and really actually helped build the base on what my uh, impression of what culture is, uh, just from like firsthand experience, having these two vastly different experiences. 
okay. after that, I moved over to Marmon Keystone, um, another premier steel distribution company focused on long product. Um, great, great group of guys, especially on the West Coast. Um, I had a phenomenal boss there. Um, very different dynamics, a, a lot more autonomy, um, uh, uh, not as not as much camaraderie, um, not in a bad way. It's just that was just the dynamics of how the, the structure of the company was. And um, it, it was great. And then at some point, I moved from outside sales onto the technology side, um, where I got to work for a gentleman who I would consider one of the smartest people I have met or worked for in my career, because he quickly understood what I was good at and where I needed some work. And he kind of, without really making it overly obviously, overly obvious, pushed me in a direction to that would, by default, help me work on things where I needed to work on my skills on, right? It's yeah. like when, yeah, when I think of culture, talk about culture, right? Like leadership starts at the top. Um, and I think that was like a perfect example of like this guy was a VP, super smart human being, identified, hey, this is where we need to be going. This is what I need to be doing, led by example, um, helped out whenever I needed help and and really kind of crafted a lot of how my my brain works on the technology front now. Um, so, so it was super fun. Um Back to the leadership at starts at the top point. Like we, we at one of my old companies, we used to do these things called S5 uh, blitzes where the continuous team, the continuous improvement team would pick a warehouse that needed some help. We'd go in with a broad group of people, salespeople, people in finance, people from other warehouses, and basically go around and interview each person in the warehouse, right? To figure yeah. out, hey, let's create some new SOPs. And it was really, really cool. So during one of these events, one of the VPs, who was part of that cohort doing the 5S Blitz, I look over and this dude is sweeping the whole facility, 150,000 square feet of, of, of warehouse space with a big broom, right? The most undesirable task of the day. And our VP is the one who took it upon himself to just do it. He didn't whine. He didn't say anything. He just picked up the broom and started sweeping. And man, I tell you, people were working real hard that day, right? Like the, the productivity was insane. It's it's contagious. Nobody, when you see the VP doing the thing that nobody wants to do, like, talk about leadership, talking about culture starting at the top. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so where do you see, uh, let me back up. Uh, what lessons have you learned about culture in, and and how do you plan to implement that culture uh, or those lessons learned, I guess, uh, as you scale Emmett? Definitely. So I think culture is like one of, if not the most important things, right? Because if your employees aren't happy, productivity is not going to be good, right? It's, I, th I think mm -hmm. that's a pretty, it's a pretty easy correlation to make. Happy employees, high productivity. Um I think with high productivity and happy employees, there comes challenges, right? Like obviously work from home has become this big thing. And now you look at a company like Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs just told all of their employees um, past just the investment side need to go into the office and like they're not happy. Um, but at the same time, Goldman Sachs is paying their employees a lot of money. And so you're kind of teetering this, this, this seesaw of like, okay, well, like you're making a lot of money. Um, you probably like need to listen to what you're doing. And if you don't want to take that level of work, then it might not be the world for you. Um, mm -hmm. On the flip side, a company like Airbnb is very committed to keeping their employees working from home. Um, their, their CEO, I think Brian Armstrong's his name, said very early on, hey, we're going to embrace work from home. And they took this stance and uh, and it seems to be working for them. I mean, say what you want to say about Airbnb and the troubles that they're having, but like phenomenal company and I have friends who work there and they all absolutely love it. 
Um, but there's also people at Goldman Sachs who absolutely love the more hardcore environment that's there, right? So I think a lot of it is figuring out what's going to work for us. How are we going to implement um, policies? How are we going to implement um, um, employment op- operational things, right? So like when I was trying to figure out um, this whole, the whole thing with PTO, where, where are my employees going to be? How much time can they take off? I, I kind of took a look in the mirror and go, well, what would I have really enjoyed, right? And so like what came to mind to me is like, hey, I used to go work remote all the time. Um, sometimes I'd go into the office, sometimes I'd work remote. And as long as everything was getting done, my boss never had an issue. My, I mean, my boss let me go work. I was working in Paris for a month in 2021 and just working from like 3 p.m. to midnight on Parisian time. And like my productivity actually was through the roof for a couple of weeks and then uh, it was time to go home. But like, so what, what's the problem with doing that, right? So I think right. adapting to where we are, understanding who our employees are. I also think when you look at like onboarding employees, if we're going to take a position of like, hey, we want to do a, a three-two hybrid schedule, are the people that I am hiring suited to that type of schedule, right? If somebody I hire and I go, I have a feeling this person is not going to be a good work from home worker, they might not be a good fit for the company. And that's something we have to accept and figure out. Um, so I, I think that's been kind of one of the more interesting things in figuring out the culture um, and, and all that. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so you've lived in a ton of different places. <laughs> you've had a, a bunch of different jobs. You started uh, this entrepreneurial drive at a super young age with, you know, selling golf balls. Um, how have these different experiences that you've had shaped your understanding of what company culture is. Definitely. So I think uh, when I was a little kid, probably like seven, eight years old, we lived close to a golf course. And so I used to go like rummage through the bushes at the end of the day and go pick up the golf balls and then go sell them back to the golfers on the weekend. Right. Talk about like just learning supply and demand as like a seven year old kid. So I think the entrepreneurial spirit, that's always going to be like the origin of it, which is kind of a funny a sure. funny one because I was at some point I realized like oh people who lose Callaways Callaways are worth more money than the Titleist at that point in time cool let me price those guys up a little bit so <laughs> um, I, I think from an entrepreneurial experience I always I always kind of fall back on that being the pivot points as I grew older like in middle school my dad worked at a at a laptop company I used to go buy laptops at a, with the employee discount and then sell them to the teachers at a, at a discount um, and make some money and and so I've always had that kind of. Uh, that edge when it came to like, let me find room for opportunity and let me try and capitalize on the opportunity. Because at the end of the day, like if an operation's not making money, then it's going to be, you're, you're going to be belly up, uh, dead fish in the water, right? Yeah. Um, on the cultural side of things, so I, I think like it, it goes back to just being a happy human being and putting yourself in a position to be happy. None of the, none of the jobs, I've, I don't think I've ever had a job where I was miserable at work. Um, I, I think making sure people are happy is the key to success, even in jobs where like when I, when I was working in marketing um, out of college, the job at the beginning was super fun and I was having a blast at work and doing a lot of cool stuff and working in media and doing a lot of collaborative things. And then once the novelty started wearing off, I was like, all right, cool, let me go, let me go find a new, new position to put myself in and then I help build a toolbox that I think has put me in a good position today to operate um, just as like an entrepreneur and somebody leading a company. Um, and I think the, these experiences all just play into um, 
into the cultural element indirectly. Um, I think my experiences, I want people to have the same experiences I have had in being happy at work, enjoying what you do, having work-life balance, being able to go home and actually tune out and enjoy your wife and kids, turn on the Monday night football, watch hockey, go on vacation. I think like if you can't do all that, if you're always constantly working, I think those two, when you look at a Venn diagram, they need to overlap. Otherwise, you're just going to be a miserable human being. Your productivity is going to dip. And then if you have low productivity, your boss at work's not going to be happy. And I think it's all just one vertical uh, vertical correlation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to back up to something that you said a, a couple of uh, answers ago. You're talking about um, you know Goldman Sachs and and um, Airbnb and and you've mentioned a couple of tech companies in some of your answers. So it sounds like you're all about Emmett being a distributor of the future of metals. Is, is that correct? Absolutely. And I would actually take it a step farther. I think like metals distribution is the core of what we're going to be doing. Um, I think becoming the everything platform for manufacturing is long-term vision. When you look at manufacturers, they're very, very good at building things, producing things, taking metal, taking plastic, or whatever the, the item they're working with and turning it into a finished good. They are phenomenal with that. Excuse me. Everything around that is where they, they, they have some trouble. It's like procurement, logistics, um, technology within the workplace. These are all things that like, are a huge pain in the ass if you're trying to set up uh, an operation. You want to focus on what you do best. Um, the second you start having to hire somebody for a certain vertical, it becomes a detriment to your day-to-day. That's a new person to manage. That's resources being allocated, both time and money. Um, it, it, it's easier said than done. So if we can crack this code where a manufacturer can leverage our services for their procurement, like if you can come and get a, an instant quotation on material, you can track your shipment, you can basically have like a TMS system built in, um, get logistics going. Hey, manufacturers are manufacturing the goods. Once the good is manufactured, they need to ship it from their facility to their their customer or their distributor. How do we how do we become a larger player within their value chain? How do they rely on us more than just as a distributor? Um, distribution is the, the business I know and is absolutely our core function, uh, but we do want to grow and become a, a huge player and a huge partner to manufacturers on a bigger scale past just the procurement element. Wow. So uh, how have you or how did you, uh, depending on where you are in the process, approach crafting your mission and vision statements and company values to shape and build the culture for the future of Emmett? Definitely. So I'd be lying to you if I said I sat down and crafted some values. Um, at this point, we're, we're full speed ahead. I think our value right now is have fun, build, and get to market. Because um, and until we do that, there's really like our, our priority right now is getting things up and running. Um, I think the culture though is in hiring our two people right now. It's funny. I put a um, I put ads on LinkedIn to actually three. I put for an account manager in Texas, an account manager in Chicago, and then we have an SDR, so like an inside sales rep type thing. Yeah. Um, and I I put the two account managers in Chicago and Texas because A, I didn't know how many people were going to reach out for the rules, right? I might get 10 employees, I might get, or sorry, I might get 10 applications, I might get 40 applications, like who knows, right? Mm-hmm. I ended up getting, I think 180 for the Texas one and another 200 for the Chicago one in a matter of 
days. I was like, okay, perfect. So like, I have an opportunity now to be a little more selective and really put some more emphasis into this is where I want the culture to go. Well, like at the end of the day, beggars can't be choosers, right? If I get 10 people to choose from, I need to just hire the best one. And there's not as much breathing room in terms of like finding the right person at this point in time. Uh, but I got super lucky. And I one, one of the big things when I was uh, when I was hiring, it's like on the job application, one of the requirements, it just read like obsessed with being the best, basically. And so when I would talk to a lot of the people I was interviewing, uh, before even jumping into formal questions, I'd say like, hey, why are you obsessed with being the best? And hey, it would throw people off a little bit. So let's see how quick you are on your feet. Um, but people gave really fascinating answers. And like the reasons varied, um, but I think it gave a really good insight into like how the psyche of this human being that I'm looking to hire operates and it helped find the people who are going to fit into the culture I am trying to build. Um, one of the questions I would ask people when I was, I was, I was interviewing is like, hey, what's the best situation for you to be in to succeed? Um, and they don't know what I've, I haven't told them like, Hey, I'm looking to do a hybrid situation. I want to know what you want. I want to know where you thrive. Um, yeah. and so the answers we got and the reasons why I got those answers and the, the information I extracted from them was really crucial in finding the right people to bring on board as my first few, um, employees. Wow. Okay. Um, so do you see this having a evolution as you, progress through various stages i mean when when do you think that you will sit down and define values because really all the that a healthy company culture is right is an alignment of values between the organization and the employees right when it, there's no such thing truly as a, as a toxic culture there's just misalignment of those values so uh, you're you're in this you know move fast and break things, startup tech uh, mode right now, get, get to market, I guess, uh, as you said. Um, but I, I don't know if that's sustainable long-term, right? So do you see this being a, a progression where you'll you'll see different steps along the, the journey? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. It's definitely not sustainable. I'm very upset about that one. Uh, 100% not sustainable. I think it's just because we are moving, moving fast and breaking things. Um, no, I think before we, before we start onboarding the next employee, that's where like we need to, I need to sit down and create like documents and create the values and define all of these things. Um, because then it becomes like when you're talking to potential employees um, and candidates, you can talk about these things. Whereas now I'm just kind of like saying, hey, this is what we're looking to do. Uh, whereas right. it be kind of switches over from this is what we're looking to do to, hey, this is what we are doing. Uh, right. And I think like in having some experience getting up to this point where it took some time to kind of analyze what we're looking to do, hey, I've learned a couple of things. If I had written our values three months ago before we even started developing the platform uh, and having any employees, it'd be very different than how I would write it today. I think being able to learn a little bit, have some data to look back on has helped, has put me in a much better position to craft what these values are. Um, and I think values are very important. Like, I think when you look back at the, uh, the, the famous or infamous, depending on who you ask Netflix deck on values, one of the <laughs> things that their CEO talks about is like, Hey, family is a terrible value to have, right? Which team is different, but family, like we we're born with family. We're not born with our employees. Like, Team, hey, team is a different situation, right? You try out for a team, so you interview for a team. If you're not performing well, you get put on the bench, right? So if you get put on the bench, hey, you might be on a PIP as an employee performance uh, enhancement plan, 
or what is it, performance uh, improvement plan, right? Right. Um, if you're not performing on a team, like you're not going to be there very long. Whereas like if you have that as your value, I think that puts puts an emphasis on the competitive environment. We're looking to become the best, right? Um, family, totally different. Like you're stuck with these people and like, like whether good or bad, like that that is the reality of the situation, right? So when you take on the value of like family, yeah, sure. Like you can break bread with your team and your family, but at the end of the day, you can't get rid of your family, not the environment you want at work. You want everybody to operate right. like a family, but like you, you got to get rid of a bad employee or somebody who's the weakest link or somebody who's bringing down your productivity. Like obviously you want to try and work with them because you saw something in them at the beginning, but you have to make these tough decisions as a leader. And when you have something like family as the value, it makes things a little bit tougher to do and to make those tough decisions and to move forward and put your company in the best position to succeed and to become the 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 premier player in your game and steal market share away from your customers. You gotta be a hardcore man. We're we're trying to to take away market share from huge distributors between billions of dollars a year. Um family's not gonna cut it. We need the strongest team imaginable. I need to go win the Stanley Cup. I need to go win the Super Bowl. Otherwise, we're gonna be stagnant and we're gonna be mediocre. Yeah. I, and uh, you know, one of the things that I tell uh, clients and people that I speak to, and and it's been rather a controversial uh, stance in the industrial industry uh, or industrial world, has been uh, exactly that. Um, but I take the approach that in a family, it's really hard to hold uh, various levels of a family accountable for their actions and words, right? Whereas on a team, it's quite easy. You can hold a coach accountable. You can hold uh, a manager accountable uh, as a player, um, but it's really hard for a child to hold an uncle, a parent, or a grandparent accountable for their words and actions, right? Uh, so uh, I, I take that approach, but I, I like your approach of, you know, you, family is is somebody you don't necessarily always choose. Um, teams are, are a little bit different. So nice point there. Yeah, and there, there's no KPIs in a family, right? You're not telling your kid, hey, I need you to do X, Y, and Z, otherwise you're off the team. Right. We're not going to kick you out if you don't mow the lawn. We're stuck with you for 18 years. So it's a very similar, uh, very similar methodology there. Uh, and now, now you just put the thought in my head. I kind of want to put KPIs <laughs> out there for my kids. Um, they're going to hate that idea, but I kind of like it. Yeah, you can it. blame me. Throw me under the bus all you want. Uh, I will. Absolutely. I'll be like, hey, I interviewed this guy and he talked about yep. KPIs for kids. Yep. Maybe that's and a whole book. KPIs for kids. Maybe that'll teach uh, that'd kids be a good uh, one. accountability. Um, I like that. But no, and I, I do want to address the flip side too, though, right? In, in talking about this and taking such a hardcore um, approach to it, like the other Netflix philosophy within that deck that goes hand in hand with that attitude is, Hey, we're going to pay you a lot of money and you're going to, we're going to, you're going to be paid as if you are the best and you're going to be handsomely rewarded. And when you're not the best anymore, like the reward goes away. We need you to perform at an extremely high level. And in doing so, you got to pay people. I think there's this huge issue where like people don't want to pay above market rate. Well, if you don't want to pay above market rate, you're just going to get a market rate employee, right? People who are the best are the best because they're, they're incentivized to perform. If you don't provide the incentive to perform, you're, you're, you're going to have a bunch of mediocre employees. I think that's something 
um, steel is distribution specifically. I can't talk as much towards the manufacturing because I don't know the, the economics of manufacturing employees, but like with steel distribution, um, people, people leave a lot of, a lot of companies and a lot of the times HR will use this line that I absolutely despise. They'll go, there was a better opportunity for them elsewhere. And then you right. go on their LinkedIn and they just took the same position at another company. And it's like, no, why aren't we the better opportunity? Better yeah. opportunity elsewhere to me just translates to they were willing to pay him more money. And in return, now we have to go find somebody new, which means we have to allocate HR resources. Um, we're going to have a gap in that territory, which means we're probably going to lose some market share in that market. Like yeah. these things add up. So this this whole thing of like, hey, if you're going to, uh, you you buy cheap, you get cheap return, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that goes hand in hand with taking the attitude that like you're building a team and the team needs to be rewarded. Hey, if you're the best wide receiver, we need to pay the wide receiver to go earn his uh, his his 120 receptions and 1400 yards every year. There's a lot of value to that. That's going to bring us a lot closer to the Super Bowl than going and taking a bunch of wide receivers for a third of the price who might be getting 40 catches a year for 400 yards and a couple touchdowns. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um Joey, tell us about this jump you made from the restaurant media world um, to steel sales, and how was the and the the different industries, the culture of the different industries, different, and how did that affect you? Definitely. So I worked in LA at one of the food groups who had uh, four or five restaurants and a commercial bakery. Um, and one of the restaurants was like this super fancy, like crazy wine list, like grand wine spectator, grand award winning type stuff. Um, and then the other restaurants were a little more casual and it was very fascinating. Like the people who worked at the, the big restaurant were making like insane amounts of money. And they were like, they were like career, like career, um, career service people. And like, these guys are sharp, man. They can go work at any company and they will absolutely crush it. They just loved working in hospitality. Um, and that was their thing, right? Culture at that restaurant was insane, man. It was like, it was like the, the sergeant came out and everybody got in line and everybody knew where to be. And the, the expediters knew when to show up when the waiter was leaving. Like it was beautiful to sit at the bar and watch that operation go. And then the night would end and everybody was saying, thank you. Good job. I appreciate you coming to help me out when the customer at this table is being difficult and all that. Right. So phenomenal culture. And then you go to one of the more casual restaurants and one of the restaurants was in Brentwood by UCLA. Um, and the people working there didn't understand the level of quality needed to, uh, to, to service the, 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 the rich people in Brentwood, basically out in LA. And I yeah. told the owner, I go, Hey, you should get a bunch of UCLA kids to go work at that restaurant because people are nicer to kids. If the kid makes a mistake, you're not going to get yelled at. Um, but so, and because the environment was a little more hostile, the, 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 the culture there was not as good. People weren't high-fiving each other. Uh, people weren't grabbing drinks with one another after work. People weren't helping each other um, as much as at the, the big restaurant where everybody worked as, as a team in unison. So I think that was fascinating to see as a 23, 24 year old fresh out of college. Um, the job was really cool, man. I got to go and do a bunch of wine dinners and coordinate with Vice and LA Times and all these companies. And it was really cool. I got to try a bunch of good wine and it was fun, but like very little fulfillment. And I think that's where um, it, it was my, my sales, my knack for sales kind of kicked in and I was like, okay, cool. This has been really cool. This has almost kind of been like an entry into the real world in terms of like showing up to a nine to five, 
having corporate, not corporate, but like semi-corporate responsibilities, starting to learn technology, how technology helps um, these restaurants and the general firm operate. And it was really a good way to like dip my toes in the pool without diving in. And I think it helped me understand things a little better. Um, So when I wanted to make a switch onto a more corporate side, I had a buddy who was doing an internship at um, at Reliance at their corporate office in LA. And uh, it sounded really interesting. He was like telling me about some of the things they sell and some of the things that the companies that buy material from them are building. And I was like, this is cool, man. This is like behind the scenes America. And that's how I always kind of describe the seal industry to my friends now who all work in tech. Nobody, like, I always tell them like, when you're at the airport, go count the things made out of metal. You will run out of numbers. Like people don't realize what goes into the the products that they use every day, right? I'm sitting on a chair made of steel tubing. There's a right. microphone in front of me that has an aluminum extruded arm. There's a window that has aluminum extrusions, right? Metal is everywhere. Manufacturers help the world go go around and push forward and become innovative and help like America as a country be stay as like the premier country in the world, right? Like manufacturing helps the earth turn literally and metaphorically. Yeah. Um, so when it came to like fulfillment, that sounded really fulfilling to me to actually be firsthand contributing to things being made. That's a really cool thing to me. And that was like, that, that was the beginning of the end. I love it. Uh, it's such an amazing industry to be in. That's awesome. Um, so you've worked for two billions of dollar corporations in, in your space. Um, what were some red flags uh culturally that you saw in in those corporate environments that you're trying to steer clear of uh, as you're building out Emmett? Yep. So I think one of the fascinating things is you'll hear a lot of these old school distributors, legacy companies, and these are all phenomenal operations, right? This isn't me like talking bad about them. These are all phenomenal operations. But like some of the red flags you mentioned is like one of the things you'll hear a lot is like our average tenure is like 15 years. And my mind, I'm like, why would you want like that, that seems way too high, right? How do you have people who've been doing the same job for 10 years? That's going to create complacency. People need to move around. People need to experience new things. People need to build their respective toolboxes. So whenever I would hear companies bragging about how, what the average tenure of an employee is, that to me was always like a red flag. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating. I think when you look at tech companies, like Sure, other end of the spectrum, they probably need to need to increase their average tenure, right? Mm-hmm. Some companies have like two-year employees. That's like it takes you six months just to get up and running. So you've really essentially only worked that company for a year and a half and then you're moving on. So I think that's an issue too. So how do we create a culture where we're like in between? How do we have a culture where we're hiring an inside sales person with a goal to get them to outside sales? within 18 months to two years, right? You need a plan to grow these employees' careers because if you don't grow their careers, two things are going to happen. They're either going to become complacent in the role they're in because they haven't really experienced much growth or they're going to leave for the literal better opportunity at another at another company. So if this is a valued employee, how do we make sure they're progressing in their career? I think that's an emphasis that I definitely want to put in having plans in place to make sure people are staying sharp People are staying fresh and people are having fun at work. Um, I think that was one of the big red flags. Um, past that, I think just like the the lack of young people in the industry. And like there, there's no way that you can't beat around that bush. Like the demographics of the metals industry are really skewed to an older crowd. Manufacturing is a little different. I think manufacturing has gone much younger, much quicker. 
when you look at uh, when you look at Thomas, ThomasNet puts out a demographics report within their marketing materials every year, right? Five years ago, the average demographic at a manufacturing company, um, I think it was like 65% were above the age of 45. Five years later, 2023, the average um, employee is under, I think it's like 65% now, is under the age of 45. So the manufacturers are getting younger. And what that means is like what they're demanding from their suppliers and their value chain is different than what the value chain, the distributor is offering. So like you need to get younger to stay up to date with what your customer base is doing. If you don't do that, like you're going to end up with a bunch of people on the distribution side who are older, out of sync, a lot of people who are in lifetime achievement award positions because they've worked at the company for 20 years and they think that he's the next VP because he's been there the longest. Meanwhile, this guy has no idea how to log onto a computer. That's a very real problem in the environment. And yeah, sure, it's a little harsh, but like that's the reality. You need to stay up to date with what your customer is doing. And I think that's when you look outside of our industry. That's what a lot of these younger com- companies have had a lot of success with. When you look at like how companies have pivoted over time, that that tells the story. Like we want to become the Uber, not the taxi cab. There's still a lot of taxi cab drivers who are holding on to their medallions for dear life. And yeah, sure, it's an asset and that's a whole different can of worms. But like you need to let go of the medallion and start ride sharing at some point because that business is no longer sustainable. The market wants Uber, not a taxi cab. So we need to make sure we're the taxi or we're the Uber, we're the Airbnb, not the not the obsolete technologies that are on their way out. It's the same thing with metals distribution. We're not reinventing the wheel here. We're not reinventing uh, how businesses are done. We're just reinventing the way to get from point A to point B in a modern and efficient way that is culturally more in tune with our customer base. So uh, along those lines, Joey, how how sustainable do you think the the gig economy uh, is? Right, I mean, you look at uh, Uber, Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash. You know, all this list of of gig economy uh, employers. I guess uh, because I don't have another term to call them. I, I <laughs> um, but it's it's not necessarily to me a really sustainable uh, culture for the employees, the the people who do those things, right? Um, Instacart just slashed uh, the minimum that they're paying out per drive, right? And, And so these corporations, these tech companies that seem to be putting profits over people um, are, are starting to, lose people. And I, I I see us getting a wave of people coming back into the workforce from the gig economy uh, that were employed or working with and for these corporations that were putting people over or profits over people. Where do you think that falls uh, in line with, with what you just said? Well, so I think a people getting back into like the the more formal workforce is a good thing, right? There, it, it's amazing. Like the job market is still in need of employees. You hear about all the tech layoffs, and like that's only in tech. You go to any industrial company, they are all still hiring and need human beings. So it wouldn't be a bad thing. Yeah. Um, I, I think when you look at like the cycles of what the Ubers and the Lyfts and the Instacarts have paid their employees, it's all supply and demand, right? At certain times when there's less drivers, they need to incentivize the drivers. When there's more drivers, they're de-incentivized. I think there's just a natural supply and demand on that stuff. Um, but I think the culture within Uber as a company 
not Uber for the contractors is extremely strong. Like everybody I know who works at Uber absolutely loves working at Uber. Um, I think the gig economy, when you look at what Uber started out to be versus what it is today, I'm hard pressed to believe that Uber's goal was to turn the gig economy into a full-time job, right? The Uber's original selling point was like, hey, why don't you guys come drive, uh, leverage your vehicle, go make some more money on the weekends, and you'll be able to make some more money, right? So I think the culture to the the, the contractor is very volatile. There's there's no way around that one. Yeah. I don't think that relationship ever gets better. Um, I think a better analogy in terms of like the gig economy would be like, hey, look at all these companies now who are doing warehousing for larger customers, right? They have warehouses all around the country. And so like that's kind of like a gig warehouse per se, where you can put whatever your product is closer into a warehouse rather than having a, your, your own warehouse, right? Like that's kind of the future of, of inventory and distribution. And when you need to do that last mile delivery, you hop on and your ERP system is connected via API to the distribution center. And now it's all a click away and you don't have to so fully automated. I would say that's more closer in tune to like what we're doing. Um, but I do think the, the gig economy has a volatile culture between the contractor and the, uh, the contractee per se. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, but I, I do think there's a line between contract. Like when, when you look at Uber, there's Uber employees and Uber contractors. I think the contractors, it's a lose-lose situation and they should be looking at jobs. They should go work at companies where their services are, are needed. And I think like, Hey, some people like the Uber cause there's the freedom of uh, being able to work when you want. I'll meet Uber drivers taking my, my Uber at three 30 in the morning to the airport. And they love the flexibility of like, hey, I get to spend time with my kids. And I think to them, they might argue that, hey, no, this is great. And do I want to make more money? Yeah, sure. Who doesn't want to make more money? But the value to them is they get to spend more time with their family that a traditional nine to five would not provide them the opportunity. Sure. With. Got it. Got it. But it's a lose. I think it's a lose-lose situation for uh, the contractors either way. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. Um, and, and I do see... A wave and and maybe that's how we fill some of these skills gaps you know a, a unique way to fill the skills gap in in these skilled trades manufacturing industrial distribution etc is by recruiting to those contractors um i mean i'm on reddit uh quite often and uh not that i follow the the subs of Uber and Instacart and DoorDash, but I see uh, they pop up in my feed every once in a while. And it's always these horror stories of how these contractors are being completely taken advantage of. Maybe we need to uh, collectively make a push to get those people into uh, the trades. Uh, maybe, it, and, and I'm just thinking out loud, idea just came into my head. So anybody who's listening, go target Uber drivers to, to, become machine operators and salespeople for you. Yeah, um, even it's it's funny, even like CNC operate or sorry, CNC as a as a service, right? Like you you can find I'm sure you can find people who can do the master cam drawings and the CAD files and all that remotely. That's a perfect service, man. If you know how to if you know how to create CAD files, start an LLC, go start finding customers. Cause like when you get drawings from some customers they're made in the, the last revision was in 1992 and the notes are in pencil, right? How, right? how do we, like, that's a perfect opportunity if you have the technical skills and you'll go make a lot more money uh, if you can crack that code right there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, but it, it is a shame that more people don't go into manufacturing because a it's, a, a, it's phenomenal living, right? You talk about like being members of like amazing teams, all these manufacturers 
have like a lot of them have phenomenal cultures in house and the people who are miserable working their corporate nine to five, A, they can probably be making a lot more money working at a manufacturing site. But I don't yeah. think people, I think in terms of like marketing manufacturing as an industry, both on the manufacturing side and the metal side and any other adjacent industry, I don't think we do a very good job marketing the industry to the up and coming generation. I have cousins who are 18 years old. They're just starting college. They look at me and what I do, like, like, why? They're like, why don't you go work at Tesla or whatever? I'm like, well, that's not as interesting. But they genuinely don't understand what's even out there. And I think that's because like we as an industry just don't do all that great of a job marketing ourselves to the next generation. How many machine shops, how many companies, how many um, regional steel distributors who are family-owned businesses? The kids don't want to go into the, the industry because to them, it's just not appealing. How do we make it appealing? Yeah. Um, how do we appeal to the kids who went and spent $100,000 on a degree and they're going to go make $45,000 a year out of college, right? It's going to take them 15 years to pay off that degree. Why don't you go to a trade school and get an actual tangible skill that you can then aid, not have much student debt, if any, um, and then go work at a machine shop where, hey, by the way, there's tons of technology in these machine shops. You want to go work in tech, go work on the other side of technology rather than the building right. side. Go work on the side that's leveraging the technology. Mm -hmm. It's like everybody had an intern who's freaking out. And I hate that I'm bringing this up, but I had an internship who's like freaking out about chat GPT when it started coming out. And I'm like, dude, you're looking at this the wrong way. Figure out how to turn that into a skill that you know how to leverage and you will be able to go do whatever you want to go do. And I think it's the same thing with the folks who are getting into machining. If you can go learn how to use Mastercam, if you can go learn how to properly um, run autonomous um, systems within manufacturers, if you can go learn how to code things within manufacturing, dude, you will you will set up the few your future, your kids' futures. It'll it'll be a phenomenal career to get into. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Joey, as we wrap up, what haven't I asked you that you want to share with uh, the listeners today? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of manufacturing and just like just this whole industry we're all a part of, I think it's a really interesting time, right? Because you have phenomenal like robotics companies. I can't wait to go to like West Tech in a couple, what is it? In I think September, right? Yeah. Um, you have really, really cool things happening around us. And I think some companies are going to understand how to leverage all of the things happening around us. Like realistically, if if you have the the capital to go invest, like Path Robotics, right? They're doing like automated um, automated welders uh, with with um, with AI. Like you don't have to do setups anymore, right? There's AI tools that are doing all the setups and all the measurements and all that stuff. I don't know the technical terms, right? But I know Path Robotics is solving a lot of these issues, right? So, okay, cool. They're automating that process. Okay, cool. How do we automate the supply chain leading up to that point? How do we automate what happens once that material is welded, right? You're yeah. going to be able, the, the manufacturers who can figure out how to leverage all of these services are A, going to become way more profitable, right? You obviously have a lot of upfront costs, but upfront costs are no different than the cost for your employees. I think people look at the cost of a robot and they go, wow, that's so much money. I'm like, yeah, but like in two years, it's paid dividends. And you're also creating a safer environment, which obviously like safety, manufacturing, distribution, that is the most important thing, right? So yeah. how do we increase safety? And then how do we increase our time? How do we write, how do we run our operations lights out? How do we automate these things? Without automation, like it's tough to have a future without automating. Um, and I think like the consolidation that's happening around us that is really is is fueling the automation for those who go into that sector. 
I think those who don't, they, they need to push forward somehow. And I think embracing the technology, embracing, uh, embracing these new means of, of functioning is the future. I think there's no way around that. Mach- manufacturing companies do need to become technology companies. Uh, I, I think that it, there, there's no way around it. You look around the world and the companies who are more efficient than we are. And yeah, sure, you have like the big OEMs and tier one suppliers who are as efficient as any. But like we we need to start investing more money. And I think a lot of that comes from the top down. Tier one suppliers need to start helping out their supply chain. Uh, people need to start working together, um, leveraging the available services. There's phenomenal companies out there uh, with ERP systems and things like that. Like if you're writing things on paper, it's going to be tough to see the future if you're still operating like we did in the 90s and things like that. So I think we as a, as a, as a, as an industry all need to come together. We need to all work together. We need to embrace the change rather than write out the status quo of this is how we've always done it. Um, and I think like what we're doing is playing into that. I think the other companies like the factory fixes is playing into that. Um, you have like the digifabsters and the, and the pro shops, and all that stuff. I think these are all things that companies need to seriously take a look at when we walk through facilities and they don't, and they're, they're, they're manufacturing the same thing over and over. How do you not have a forecast? Your supply, your uh, your sales team should not be your forecasting team, right? You should ha- you should be leveraging your data. And hey, guess what? There's tons of phenomenal, uh, cheap tools leveraging AI to tell you what you're going to need, and then letting you plug in. Hey, we're expecting a 10% increase and things like that, right? It, it's it's uh, I, I think it's an interesting time in the industry. I think in 10 years we're going to look back, and the years 2020 through 2025 are going to be pivotal moments for those who are able to grow their operations. And those who are going to see some of their business get moved from their operation to somebody else's operation. And I think like the harsh reality is the harsh reality we need to face head on. And I think those the if we're in denial, it's going to be a lot tougher to uh, to survive in the long term. Awesome. Awesome. Great thoughts. I love it. Uh, Joey, thank you very much for taking the time today. Uh, appreciate the conversation. Uh, it was a lot of fun and, and very insightful. So thank you very much. Absolutely. And I appreciate you having me. And just the shameless plug for all of y'all buying metal, feel free to look us up, emmethq.com, E-M-M-E-T-H-Q.com. I think by the time this podcast airs, we should be either live or approaching uh, approaching launch. All right. All right. Well, folks, that's a wrap. Awesome. Uh, what an incredible journey uh, we've taken today with Joey Hovzepian, uh diving into the heart of his manufacturing culture journey and exciting, uh, exploring, uh, the exciting vision and, uh, plans that he has for Emmett for the future. Uh, we we've talked about his entrepreneurial spirit of his youth, uh, to his drive to redefine the industry and Joey's insights have been absolutely captivating. So folks, make sure you don't miss out on more conversations just like this. Head to manufacturingculturepodcast.com to catch, like, I think it's eight that GoDaddy allows me to post ahead of time or uh, past episodes. If you want the entire back catalog, check us out on Apple, Spotify, Google, or Amazon podcasts, whatever podcast platform you listen to. If you've enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did, share it with your friends, your colleagues, or really anyone passionate about manufacturing or metals distribution, distribution in general. 
Don't forget to rate and review the show, letting me know exactly what you think and throw in some ideas for future guests that you'd like to hear from. Uh, so until next time, have a good day and keep making things. Mm-hmm.